This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Welcome to the Conkey Ride Home for Thursday, November 4th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, new international space laws may soon be on the horizon, plus the brewing battles between artists using AI to reconstruct lost artworks and the estates of the original artists, and some steel igloos in Iceland that protect one of the most promising examples of carbon capture yet. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Anyone who's watched the Apple TV Plus show For All Mankind, especially its most recent season finale, will breathe a sigh of relief at this news. A group of diplomats at the United Nations has proposed we update and develop new rules for international behavior in space, or should I say intergalactic. Actually, no, not really. I mean, if any Earth nation is successfully able to send a human beyond the Milky Way, we can revise these rules again then. But for now, we'll focus on relations between Earth nations when representatives of said nations are up in space within the confines of our own galaxy. Basically, space is getting crowded with people, with satellites, with spacecraft, and with debris. Meanwhile, many spacefaring nations are advancing their military satellite capabilities, and I am sure I am not alone in being pretty freaked out by the idea of a space war or of some kind of space weaponry aimed at Earth, so some kind of new rules sounds good to me. And there are some existing norms for international space law, mostly based on the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, also drafted by the UN. That treaty prohibits the introduction of weapons of mass destruction in outer space, sounds good to me, limits the use of the moon and all other celestial bodies to peaceful purposes, establishes that space shall be freely explored and used by all nations, and precludes any country from claiming sovereignty over outer space or any celestial body. It does not, however, expressly ban all military activity or the establishment of bodies like Space Force. The Outer Space Treaty was signed by the U.S., the U.K., and the Soviet Union in 1967, and has since been signed by all spacefaring nations. And while the vote in the UN's first committee to move forward with the new iteration passed with representatives of 163 countries voting yes, there were eight nay votes, including from both Russia and China. Quoting Wired, Those nations' opposition stems from a long-time debate over whether to instead focus efforts at the UN on negotiating new treaties among all nations with spacecraft, because treaties carry more weight and can be more clearly enforceable. For example, China and Russia have been pushing for resolution preventing an arms race in outer space, as well as a new international treaty currently deploying any weapons in space. Currently, only nukes are outlawed in space. But those ideas haven't gained traction with the U.S. and its allies. In fact, U.S. representatives have voted against such proposals for years, arguing that there are no weapons in space and therefore no arms race to address. 
In the 1980s, President Reagan championed the idea of developing space-based missile interceptors as part of the short-lived Star Wars concept. While a few policymakers today, like Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, continue to advocate for them, no one has yet designed or launched such weapons. The U.S. and its partners have been instrumental in blocking any progress with treaties and binding norms. Cassandra Steer, an expert on space law and space security at the Australian National University, said, end quote. And it's not just weapons we need to be concerned about, though. Wired gives the example of a satellite which Earthside civilians depend on for weather information, communications, or navigation. What if it were disabled somehow during an international dispute? That could have some serious consequences. And there's the matter of space debris. The more satellites and craft operating up there, the more likely one of them will run into debris created by another nation, and even tiny things can cause huge problems. Quoting again, To avoid collisions or attacks between satellites, which would also likely produce debris, experts frequently cite the Incidents at Sea Agreement between the U.S. and the former Soviet Union, which was signed in 1972. The accord mandated more communications between the two countries and required ships, including those engaging in surveillance, to remain clear of each other to avoid collisions. It didn't change the size and structure of naval forces, but brought in rules for notifications for exercises, says Jessica West, a senior researcher at the Research Institute Project Plowshares based in Waterloo, Ontario. Giving satellite owners prior warning and requesting consent to approach would go a long way so that they don't freak out and they don't worry and they don't respond to what you're doing in an escalatory way because your intention is simply to do an exercise, she says. And in a sign that the U.S. is moving toward supporting norms in space, the Defense Authorization Bill, which has passed in the House but not yet in the Senate, requires defense officials to develop a list of priorities for such norms, including those involving the issues of space debris and how spacecraft should behave in close proximity with one another. In July, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin published a memo identifying tenets of responsible behavior in space along similar lines. End quote. West has a good point, though, that all of these non-binding norms, while a good start, seem a little off when we still allow the proliferation of hardware and technology that could lead to an arms race. Getting the whole world to agree on something is a very thorny challenge, but I'm glad we're at least working on it. So I've talked quite a bit about the intersection of AI and art, and while I've been a bit skeptical about some AI-created art here and there, one thing I do think is pretty cool is being able to essentially recreate lost pieces. You know, I do still think that you need to tread carefully. It's a bit like publishing posthumous works of literature. You know, is this something that the creator really wanted? And how do you make sure you're retaining the original work even as you fill in gaps to restore it? Well, one pair working to recreate lost works are University College London PhD candidates Anthony Borshed and George Can. Together, they founded a project called Oxia Palace, named after a region on Mars that has some promise in the search for life, particularly in its subsurface. And it's an appropriate name, not just because of the analogous subsurface discoveries that the two are doing, but because Can isn't actually getting his PhD in art or artificial intelligence, but rather in efforts to detect life on Mars. Borshed, meanwhile, studies high-dimensional neuroscience. 
Unlikely for the task as the two may be, they've used their Oxia Palace project to create a number of what they call Neomasters, which, quoting Artnet, use machine learning, deep networks, and neural-style transfer algorithms developed by researchers at the University of Tübingen in Germany to analyze ghostly x-rays of overpainted artworks. Based on the artist's known works, the computer can generate a full-color version of the lost composition, end quote. From there, they 3D print a textured canvas with realistic-looking brush strokes. And by overpainted, what they mean is that canvases that were literally used multiple times, with the artist painting over their own or others' works, usually due to a lack of funds. But the pair's neo-masters of some of Pablo Picasso's lost paintings have gotten them in hot water with the late artist's estate. They recently created a version of Picasso's The Lonesome Crouching Nude, a lost work from the artist's blue period, which was revealed by a 2010 x-ray to be hidden under his other painting, The Blind Man's Meal. Borshed and Can were going to unveil the neo-master at the Deep AI Art Fair in London a few weeks ago, but on the evening of the event, they received a cease and desist letter from Picasso's estate. Claudia Andrew, the head of legal affairs for Picasso's estate, said in a statement to NBC News, quote, Disclosing a work by Picasso is a matter of copyright, and in particular, moral rights. It's a timeless right, which belongs only to the heirs of the author. Moreover, this artificial intelligence that learned to paint like Picasso will never have the sensitivity of a painter whose creativity is expressed in front of each blank canvas. The result of this artificial intelligence is not a work, and it is indecency to say otherwise. A machine cannot replace an artist, nor complete the work of an artist who has abandoned it on the way of its creation." End quote. Although, as Borshed and Can have said previously, they're not trying to replace the artist. Borshed told Artnet News earlier this year, quote, This is a contrast to a lot of current AI art, which is generative, about making something new and creative. We're looking backward to artists who have stood the filter of time in terms of cultural, societal, and historical impact, end quote. He also said to NBC News in response to Andrew's statement on behalf of the estate, quote, The right to imaginative reinterpretation, intuitive or machine-assisted, is not for succession Picasso or anyone else to deny. This is a right Picasso himself assumed in including artifacts made by others in his paintings, end quote. And Can points out that they haven't claimed to recreate Picasso's work. The original still remains buried beneath layers of paint. They're just sharing a possible reconstruction. And Ty Murphy, a Picasso specialist, for his part, thinks that it would be a travesty not to share the AI-created piece. He thinks it would be incredible to get the chance to bring a blue-period Picasso back to life. Although Emily Gould, a senior researcher at the Institute of Art and Law, says that you do generally need to get consent from the copyright holders to reproduce works like this. Now, legal ramifications aside, we go back to my question of artists' intent. You know, where is the line between forensic knowledge and history and curiosity and respecting an artist's wishes? Perhaps if Burrishad and Can had worked with the estate to begin with, this particular case would be somewhat different. But the major questions still stand. We are entering a lot of new terrain with AI, and while much of it is super cool, there is still a lot to parse out. Humming away in the Icelandic countryside is a huge machine that might just be our best bet at carbon capture yet. 
A Swiss company called Climeworks has created Orca, the world's largest commercial direct air capture, or DAC, device. Quoting the New York Times, Orca resembles four massive air conditioners, each the size of one shipping container sitting on top of another. Each container holds 12 large round fans powered by renewable electricity from the geothermal plant, which suck air into steel catchment boxes where carbon dioxide, or CO2, the main greenhouse gas behind global warming, chemically bonds with a sand-like filtering substance. When heat is applied to that filtering substance, it releases the CO2, which is then mixed with water by an Icelandic company called CarbFix to create a drinkable fizzy water, end quote. It may be drinkable, but CarbFix isn't bottling it up and selling it. Instead, the carbonated water is injected several hundred meters into basalt bedrock, protected from the environment via steel, igloo-looking structures. There, it chemically reacts with the basalt and is turned to rock in two to three years. The New York Times notes that this two- or three-year timeline compares to the centuries that the normal mineralization process was believed to take, and unlike planting forests where the trees might release carbon if they burn down or rot, this process is a permanent solution. Quoting again, Even the CO2 that other firms are planning to inject into empty oil and gas fields could eventually leak out, some experts fear, but once carbon turns to rock, it's not going anywhere. End quote. But like many carbon capture projects, its current output is barely making a dent. The Earth's annual human-caused CO2 emissions are nearly 40 billion metric tons. Orca's output represents just three seconds worth of that. So once again, there's probably a scalability issue, but the science is definitely there, and more obviously and reassuringly than a lot of other direct air capture experiments. And one thing Climeworks has in their favor is already thinking from a business perspective, not just a science one. According to the Times, they're sometimes called the first commercial DAC unit because it's being paid for in part by people who have subscribed and by firms like Stripe, Audi, and Microsoft. Co-founder Christoph Gewald believes the technology they've developed could become a trillion-dollar industry in the next few decades, but tells the Times it would help if the decision-makers currently at COP26 would commit to real action and net-zero emissions by 2050. Such commitments would increase funding and perhaps provide subsidies similar to the kind provided for electric vehicles and solar panels. Quoting again, Getting from 4,000 metric tons a year to 5 billion metric tons quickly enough to help limit climate change may seem fanciful, but there is an intriguing comparison with the world's first commercial wind farm, which opened in 1980 on Crotched Mountain in New Hampshire. That project consisted of 20 turbines with a combined output of 600,000 watts. 40 years later, in 2020, the wind capacity installed around the world was 1.23 million times larger, at 740 gigawatts. End quote. That's enough to power 500 DeLoreans. And if Orca were able to see the same level of growth, they'd hit that removal capacity of 5 billion metric tons by 2060. The Times has a more sobering reminder, though. Wind power, solar power, those are producing electricity. It's something we can use. There's a profit motive. Direct air capture, all it's doing is saving the planet. I know, 
all. But really, if people can't see the impact, it's a tougher sell. Although, you know, we'll definitely see the impact of not doing it, but you can't really sell it, so it's mostly reliant on government support. And while most of the people involved with Climaworks and CarbFix are confident in the technology, they're a bit more skeptical about government leaders coming out with helpful commitments, especially at the end of COP26. Regardless, they are going to keep innovating, finding better, cheaper, and scaled-up ways to achieve this permanent form of direct air capture. So tomorrow is November 5th, Guy Fawkes Day, otherwise known as Bonfire Night in the United Kingdom. And given that they were under lockdown orders for last year's holiday, it's probably going to be quite the celebration over there this year. And in case you missed it, I wanted to resurface the segment I did on Guy Fawkes Day last year. In it, I discuss the complicated legacy of Guy Fawkes and how he's been turned into a symbol for so many different things, so many of which are so far removed from the original man and the movement that he was a part of. Link in the show notes if you want to give it a listen ahead of the holiday. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.